Welcome to a new edition of the Neon Jazz Interview Series with veteran jazz guitarist, composer, and arranger Anthony Wilson. He grew up in L.A. and is the son of band leader Gerald Wilson, so he has been around jazz his whole life. His latest record is 2016's Frogtown, and it's another first in his career of firsts. It's his debut as a singer. Always swayed by Duke Ellington, Gil Evans, Wes Montgomery, Ry Cooter, and T-Bone Walker, his first album was in 1997, and it featured a nine-piece Little Big Band and got a Grammy nomination for Best Large Ensemble Jazz Recording. Since his father's passing, he has become the maestro of his ensemble, and that was in 2014, keeping the jazz alive. And he's branched out beyond jazz, playing with the likes of Paul McCartney, Willie Nelson, Leon Russell, Aaron Neville, and Barbara Streisand. This is one deep, interesting, and cool story-rich cat. So dig this interview, my friends. Anthony, it's a big pleasure and a big honor to speak with you. I appreciate you taking some time to talk with me today. Oh, man, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of hop in to two things that are completely ever-present in your life right now. You know, kind of what's going on in this new album, Frogtown. Give me an idea. It's your first debut album as a singer. Give me an idea of activity and this new album, how you feel about it. I love this album, Frogtown, because I just feel that it is one more step along a path of having more at my disposal to kind of tell musical stories and musical narratives. I mean, that's the way I look at it, and I think that's what I've always been most interested in, whether I've been playing music that's purely instrumental along a whole continuum of styles. What I find interesting is sort of musical stories, musical events that that tell stories and and have a kind of almost narrative arc even even when it's still just purely sound you still feel like you you start someplace and you you go through a, a middle part and you end up uh, the idea of just the music representing pure music as much as i like that sometimes when it comes from other players for me i'm i'm just interested in this idea of stories so Everything that I've been doing, I guess, over the last few years has been geared towards that. But to have a chance to mix instrumental music with music with lyrics, with kind of a broader palette of of stylistic elements available to me, that's just really exciting. Absolutely. Well, let me kind of hop back a little bit to your childhood in L.A. You know, you're the son of band leader Gerald Wilson. It's obvious to me, without even asking you how you got into jazz, but talk to me about that childhood you lived and how you got to where you are today with this love of music that you have. Well, I didn't grow up in my dad's house. My mom raised me. Um, my, my mother and my father were not married, but I spent weekends with my dad. And I guess what was interesting is that my mom had a huge record collection she loved records and that was everything from like stan getz dizzy gillespie john coltrane johnny smith kenny burrell through to bob dylan the who robbie shankar the beatles the band Joni mitchell classical music i mean i remember being transfixed by her recordings of Sati piano music and Holst the Planets when I was a little kid. So I would just go through her records 
pretty much every day as long you know as soon as I was able to operate the the record player after school I I just spent my time in a kind of a a haze of listening to records it was my favorite thing to do and and then you know my dad who I was close to and spent weekends with I his albums were in my mom's record collection so I'd sit and listen to his records from such an early age I became very familiar with his music um, and all the players that played with him people like Harold Land Teddy Edwards Joe Pass Mel Lewis Jack Wilson all of these people were like they were sort of the lore of my childhood you know the names that I kind of grew up you know, reading on on the record covers and getting excited about when I would listen to his records. And uh, and then, of course, you know, my dad, he would take me to rehearsal or he would take me to a show. And I was just a little kid, but I loved the, I loved the music. I don't think I, I didn't conceive of it as jazz. I, I was a little kid. I just liked the vitality of the music. I liked watching my dad conduct the orchestra i liked all these characters that were in the band you know i remember you know so clearly harold land because he was also like a godfather to me and uh people like guitarist john collins paul humphrey great musicians i just loved their kind of their demeanor and the way they they kind of in rehearsal they would i didn't know what they were talking about but but there was a lot of off-color humor and and camaraderie and brotherhood. I think, you know, all of that, all of that listening to records very closely, paying attention to the names of people, the names of studios, the names of engineers, and then going to things like my dad's rehearsals, sometimes uh, his radio show tapings. He had an interview radio show on a station called KBCA back in the 70s here in Los Angeles and he would take me to his tapings and I as a kid I think I met Earl Hines I met Chick Corea I mean they were not important to me but I was a little kid and I was just there and I think I was excited about music even before I ever picked up an instrument or or decided that I would like to try it it was just music was exciting to me and it always was then when I had the chance to pick up guitar or I joined a, a boys choir when I was about eight years old or nine years old, I started playing guitar when I was about seven and and this only cemented it. It just made it made everything, you know, into full technicolor for me because it was like, Oh man, this is so exciting. Every little thing that I learned how to be able to do on a guitar or to sing any musical thing just got me closer to that thing that I was so excited about. And yeah. uh, it kind of snowballed from there, you know? Sure. So was it a foregone conclusion that you were going to get into music? I mean, that was your dream. I think so. Yeah. I mean, I was so just, my imagination was so on fire for music. I think I liked other creative things as well. You know, I did plays in school and I, took art classes and I was I was totally into those things but music held a much more kind of you know magnetic fascination for me and sure. uh and then 
you know, around the age of 13, 14, I went to my first, like, summer jazz camp, and uh, which was up in the mountains here north of Los Angeles in a place called Idlewild. And they had a nice little two-week program, and uh, my mom, you know, put aside a little money and and sent me away to this camp and meant to, like, get together with people who were a little older than me. I was I was probably just out of eighth grade, but most of the students were maybe 11th, 12th grade, and uh, they had already been studying, and they, you know, they were good at things, and they had listened to a lot of recordings, and so they'd say, this is, you know, this is Dexter Gordon, or here's Eric Dolphy, and it just made me so excited, and we'd jam, and I that's when I first started to learn jazz songs off of records or you know i got my first real book i remember my dad got me the real book and then he told me he said you know some of these chords are wrong <laughs> so i was like dad can we let's play can let's play green dolphin street you know i've been listening to on miles davis i want to learn how to play it so he would sit at the piano and uh he'd say you know anthony some of these chords are not quite right and it was great because i think a lot of kids get the real book and they go like they learn the real book as though it's the text and the text really is is checking out you know as many recordings as you can of on green dolphin street or whatever song that you're learning and seeing how red garland plays the harmony seeing how herbie hancock plays the harmony or or whomever, and starting to build a kind of, of a frame of reference of how to really evoke all of those different sounds and, and kind of embody it. So it was great that I had my dad at a very early age sitting at the piano going, you know, it could be this, it could be that, you could have this, you could have this chord, this is wrong, you know, this is totally wrong. And that was the time that he he saw me starting to get serious about learning jazz and he said man you got if i can tell you anything it's just really learn harmony you know i can't force you to do it i'm going to show you things as we go along that i think are are the really important things but the main thing is that you learn to master harmony and understand harmony kind of from the inside out and uh so I, you know, I don't think it was a foregone conclusion, but I think I was at that time just really well positioned and so excited and turned on by the music. And I had good people in my life, you know, uh, some teachers at my high school. I had a really great high school music teacher, just some other people that I met at these music camps who were, you know, very excited and, and talented. So I, you know, enough enough support there to to really become serious and then then it was it became a foregone conclusion because i you know basically i spent every free free minute and hour that i could all throughout middle school and high school and into college you know just devouring recordings i if i'd had the internet then I, you know, I would have been an insane person because, you know, I would have just, I would have never stopped, you know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one thing, yeah. too, that I find interesting with your career path and with your education is that right out the gates, 1997, nine-piece, little big band, and you get a Grammy nomination for Best Large Ensemble. 
How did that feel to come out that fast and get that kind of industry recognition? It was, I was just so, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I was happy with that record, and I was really happy with the music that we made, especially there's a, a, three or four of the compositions on there I felt really reflected where I was at at my best at that time. Um, so, you know, I was, I guess, about 29 or so, and... uh and uh no i was younger yeah no i was 29 and uh and i just the only thing i thought was god you know i just i just want to keep getting better cuz i'm just starting i'm starting to learn how to kind of do the things that i want to do and i was just happy that i would have a i'd continue to have a chance to keep doing it and uh and that I had good people around me. You know, on that album, uh, Brad Meldow was the piano player. Um, this great drummer, Willie Jones III, was on there. Uh, the great tenor sax player, Pete Christley, played some amazing stuff. And Benny Wallace, amazing, amazing tenor saxophone play- player who people don't talk about as much, did a, a beautiful guest solo. And so I felt like I just had great musicians around me and I had worked hard so I was glad that the work was rewarded and that I could you know just continue working and and that's never changed for me I mean when I look now back at things that I did at that time if I look back at that album there are certainly uh, so many things that I would revise but you know, I do feel it was something to be proud of, and I was just glad that it was recognized. You know, it's uh, it makes you feel good when when you work hard, you give you give everything, you try to put together a great band, and people really hear it for what it is. You know. Yeah, and then you know, over the years, your sound's gotten much richer, much better. From Our Gang in two thousand one, uh, Jack of Hearts in two thousand nine, and in between. How how has your sound progressed over the years? How do you feel about that? What I'm most interested in, you know, first as a as a guitar player, is having a really strong sound and tone that's very clear, that is that is warm, uh, that that has some a nice sense of percussiveness and and cut to it. So, you know, purely from a kind of a a tonal standpoint. This is something that I've worked on both with with my right and my left hand, the instruments that I've played, the amplifiers that I use. So that's a process. I am very heartened when I go back and I listen to, you know, early recordings of any number of my favorite players on any number of instruments and hear how over the years their sound developed and how they they seemed to get closer to probably what they were hearing in their head. So there's there's the technical standpoint of just wanting a you know, I don't want a sound that's too muffled or too low endy. I want something that that can kind of cut through and, and I wanna play things as much as I work on all kinds of technical aspects of playing, speed and you know, and getting around the the fingerboard of the guitar with a lot of, you know, with a lot of ease. At the same time, I want to tell 
tell stories, both when I play a melody and when I play my own solos. So that's something that from the first recordings I ever made, which were with my father, to now it's just an ongoing thing. Like, how can I make that sound clearer, more full, more resonant, and tell a story? Then there's the aspect of what kind of songs do I choose? How much more do I know about harmony? What can I, what am I able to put in and what can I leave out? I've learned growing older is what I can leave out when I arrange a piece, when I write a piece. You know, I think I used to load my own arrangements with more harmonic tricks and more harmonic twists and turns than they might have needed, which to my ears now sometimes takes away from the story that I was trying to tell. And I think I might have done the same kind of things as a player sometimes, just sometimes tried too many things rather than speaking directly. So hopefully the whole process is one of taking away and clearing room for for a musical story and that can be spoken clearly to hit the listener's ears, you know, and uh, so in my own, you know, that's with original songs I try that or with with songs that I that I cover, try to just choose songs that are really interesting to me for those reasons because I think when I do, they help me to to communicate. It's just one of those things, you know, and I've worked with a lot of really great people. I've as a as a sideman, also producers, people who've who've kinda hinted at me where my strengths are. I think working with Diana Crawl has been huge in that respect because we've worked so closely together and I think a lot of through a lot of that time I've learned what really really can work in my playing and, and how I can really enhance a musical situation. So at least I hope so, you know. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this. The one thing that's interesting about your lineage, too, is that you played in your father's orchestra since the late 80s, and you took over in 2014. What's that been like, How, that, that part of your music life? Well, I mean, being in the band, being on the band, and, and just the same thing, being sitting next to people like Paul Humphrey on drums or Harold Land or Teddy Edwards, or the trumpeter, this great trumpeter, Oscar Brashear, uh, or Thurman Green, all these kind of amazing musicians. And then watching my father conduct and get results, that was just something, that's like a dream, you know, to, to see how these guys work together as an ensemble under a really strong leadership and, uh, playing great music, how they kind of render the uh, the power of that music. So, so it was a great first apprenticeship for me to just be in the middle of that sound, to hear that sound, to hear the individual parts. As I've grown, I became so interested in, in arranging for ensembles, and I, I did those three albums with the, with the nine-piece band, which was kind of my solution of having a sort of big band, but at least maybe having a fighting chance of presenting it live because with a big band, you just, you don't always have the economic ability to keep doing it. So my, my choice was, 
when you have something a little smaller, but with the ability to experiment with arranging. So I became so interested in that. And, and, uh, and then it's just, it's, it's been this, this real continued interest for me now, especially that my dad is gone. Um, you know, so for many years I contributed, I, I contributed a couple of pieces to the band's book and I just felt very close to that pursuit. And now that he's gone, even though it's not something I can do on a 365 day a year basis, it remains important to me that people know what his music is about and was about what he was about through his music. You know, we're almost to his centennial year. That'll be in 2018. And uh, so, you know, one of the things that I really want to dedicate the next year to is preparing uh, and putting in motion, you know, plans to do performances, both with his band, you know, playing things that he maybe never never got around to playing live after he recorded them. There's like, you know, there's just crates and crates full of great, great arrangements that didn't really see the light of day after they got recorded. There's things that he arranged for for great vocalists, such as Nancy Wilson, Sarah Vaughn, Johnny Hartman. I think all of this stuff needs to be heard. So for me, this was just starting out as a teenager, as a sideman in his band, wanting to learn, wanting to absorb, and over, you know, a few decades, having having that be as central to my mission as anything else, that 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 a a great big band led by a great composer, arranger, conductor, with an incredible book of music, that's a that's a living tradition that needs to stay alive. Um, so I just want to keep doing it. You know, it, it means it means the world to me. You know, the one thing, too, that's been interesting about your career is you've really done a lot of things that have been outside of the jazz realm. You've worked with Paul McCartney, Willie Nelson, Aaron Neville, Barbara Streisand. What do you learn from being around people outside of the jazz realm that really have, you know, legendary statuses? Well, one thing I've learned is that they all have so much love for the old music, the old songs, the great jazz traditions, the great players. I mean, I've actually, you know, with Paul McCartney, with Willie Nelson, with Aaron Neville, the things that we did were actually albums of standards. So that was a quite, that was slightly maybe a different uh, perspective that I might have gotten about these people from just the context we were working in. Um, but it was so beautiful to see how deeply they they loved all the old music. I mean, with Willie Nelson, he and I just kept talking about Django Reinhardt, you know, during the whole session. I mean, he's just so, so, so in love with Django Reinhardt. And, and it's interesting because when you hear Willie Nelson's guitar style, even though he... He is a complete non-flash guitar player, but he's he's very well known for his, you know, his eight-bar or sixteen-bar solos that usually are some kind of restatement of the melody with some kind of embellishment. And what I realized when he 
when I realized how obsessed he was with Django Reinhardt, I realized, man, he gets that same kind of beautiful cutting sound on his acoustic. And he just, even though he doesn't, there's nothing in his style that's like a Django licks, it's that same kind of beautiful clarity. And, and so I guess what I was impressed with by all these people was, was first of all, their, their love for what we were doing together. And then just their, you know, just incredible openness, their, you know, all of them, whether it's Barbara Streisand, Paul McCartney, they're just totally tuned in to the song. The song is really the object that they're working with and, and everything needs to contribute to the song. And they've just lived in that world for so long. You know, great songwriters like Willie Nelson, Paul McCartney, they just have lived that almost as a mantra or a, or a rule. It's like the songs are, are so clear, so good, everything stripped away except what's essential that they bring that into to everything they do. And then they have fun. It's not super, it's, I mean, it's quite serious, but it's not so serious that it's, you need, there's no tension in the room when you're, when you're starting to uh, play a song with Paul McCartney. I mean, we did, we did one, uh, like a video performance that's uh, called Live, Live Kisses, which was sort of a companion to the album that we did. We had an intro on one of the songs that we were supposed to do, and he whistles the intro, and and each and he he was not quite getting his pitch, and like that was maybe the most tension we ever had in it, in doing anything. But the thing was, he just had so much fun about it. It was like, oh my god, I'm not hearing the pitch. And as soon as he got it, we just clicked in, and we had so much fun. And and uh, great great professionals at the top of their game, respecting the song and 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 doing wonders with it is, I guess one of the great lessons for me and it's something I'm really interesting interested in trying to bring into my own career. So speaking of coming up with songs and giving them to the fans, you've performed for a lot of fans over the years on both disc and live. What's one of the nicest things a fan has ever said to you? I get I mean I get so many good things. It's usually, you know, a tweet comes from some somebody in some other country and or or a little post where they've learned a piece of a solo. I mean, can you imagine, you know, like somebody from Ecuador or Turkey making a little video of having learned eight bars of your solo and then being so happy that they were able to get it right and they put it up and they post it and they thank you for the music that you've made. You know, they thank you for eight bars that you played one night on a show you know, yeah. and it got, that's like, to me, it's amazing because it means so much to me to play the music that I do, but I don't always know if it's communicating to anybody, you know, and yeah. and that sense that somebody took their time to learn that thing, and it meant enough to them, that the, and there was something in it for them, like, wow, this is going to teach me something, and then they share it, little things like that that happen um you know i mean i was we played a, a show in mexico and with diana crawl somebody came to me with with all my albums and i'm thinking 
how did even some of these some of these albums aren't even distributed to Mexico? You know, so somebody had to really go out of their way to find these little independent albums that I made. And God, just, you know, those little things, they just keep you going. You know, the other things that keep me going are, you know, just the older musicians who who encouraged me over the years. And that's as much of a kind of a fandom as well. When when somebody that you really respect and, and you see that they're they're at your show in the audience, and that they've become a fan, it's like, you know, because you see them in the audience and your heart starts beating because you're like, oh, my God, I'm playing guitar in front of Phil Upchurch or something. You know, yeah. Phil Upchurch, he's the baddest, you know? And and there he is. And then after a show, he came up to me and he said, uh, he said, well, you know, uh, when I first heard you, I wasn't so sure about you. And that's great because you, cause you like that. You like when the older musician... Mm-hmm. sort of gives you a little bit of the skepticism. And he said, he said, but then one night you played something and it just tickled me. It made me laugh so hard. And I realized you had a sense of humor and that turned me around. Like when somebody that's played on so many records and he just killed it, tells you that you made them laugh and they became a fan. It's the same as when, you know, that kid sends you a, you know, the eight bar solo that they learned. It's just, it's encouraging it. You know, you never know who you're, who you're communicating to. So I think it's really important and can't even believe it when it happens. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome, man. That's great. Let me, yeah. let me ask you this. This is everything you, you've done a great way of condensing a lot of questions that I have. And I got one that's funneling down to this final big question. And I want to know okay. that everyone has a version of who you are your family, your friends, your fans, your business associates. But when you wake up, you go out into the world, who are you? Wow. Well, that's a big question. Yeah. And Yeah, and I mean, well, you know, there's so much. I would like to, I would like to think that, you know, something could happen. God forbid I could uh, lose my hands in an accident. Anything could happen. So I don't take music for granted. I don't take anything uh, for granted you know um uh in music though i i've had an opportunity to to sort of show various sides about who i am i'm a person who wants to communicate i'm a person who wants to tell stories through music i'm a person who doesn't like being classified. I I want the chance to to explore a lot. I want the chance to to look around and gravitate towards what's really compelling to me. So you know, as as a musician, I've loved jazz, I've loved rock and roll, I've loved classical music, all kinds of folk and bluegrass and and blues and roots music. I think maybe that sense of a very curious, open person who wants to learn and wants to get a sense as much as possible as what's out there and what's possible for him, I think that might be a a pretty consistent and enduring part of my character. Somebody who stays open, my heart stays open, my mind stays open, 
so that all the various possibilities that are out there are able to to kind of get to me and that I can resonate with them. That might be one way towards answering it. And it's a hard question. Yeah, it is. And you did a great job of answering it. That 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 <laughs> captures a level of essence that I was really looking for. And with that, I want to thank you for taking some time out, for being so genuine and open and giving me your your stories. I really appreciate it. Joe, it's a, it's a real pleasure. I really appreciate you uh, giving me the uh, giving me the platform and the uh, the exposure. Thanks for listening and tuning in to yet another Neon Jazz interview, where we give you a bit of insight into the finest players in New York, Kansas City, and spots all over the world, giving fans all that jazz. And thanks to Anthony for his time, his stories, and all that cool. If you want to hear more interviews, go to Famous Interviews with Joe Domino on the iTunes Store, or visit the Neon Jazz YouTube channel, or for all things Neon Jazz, go to the neonjazz.blogspot.com. Until next time, enjoy the music, my friends. Neon Jazz.